Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sunup. The Daily Sunup podcast is a conversation with the Colorado Sun. See our trust indicators at coloradosun.com slash ethics. It's Friday, March 1st. Today, since it's Friday, it's time once again for a look at Colorado's literary landscape. This week, Sun writer and editor Kevin Simpson chats with an author whose latest book examines democracy, both in online spaces and beyond. Before we begin, whether you're buying a new home, taking a loan to purchase your first car, or putting money away for a rainy day, banking doesn't need to be complicated. Above all else, Alpine Bank wants you to achieve your dreams. It's that simple. For 50 years, our focus has been on you, and for the next 50 and beyond, that won't change. Because a better tomorrow for our customers starts with helping their dreams come true today. Learn more about Alpine Bank and its services at alpinebank.com or stop in and see us. Now let's go back in time with some Colorado history. On this day in 1883, R.S.A.W. Tabor, Colorado's newest senator, married Elizabeth Baby Doe McCourt in a lavish ceremony attended by President Chester A. Arthur and other elites. Born in Vermont in 1830 and moving to Kansas Territory in 1855, Tabor became a leading figure in Leadville, Colorado, after striking it rich in 1878. His ascent to wealth and political prominence was marked by his election as lieutenant governor and his extravagant lifestyle, culminating in his controversial divorce and remarriage. However, Tabor's fortune reversed with the Panic of 1893, leading to his death in poverty in 1899. Baby Doe met a tragic end in 1935, frozen to death in their last property, the Matchless Mine. Before we continue, thanks for listening to The Daily Sunup from the Colorado Sun. Please take a moment to rate and review us in your podcast player. Tell us what you think of the show, share your ideas, and help us reach new listeners. Thank you. Next, our feature story. Welcome to the end of the work week, listeners. And today, we're talking with Nathan Schneider, an assistant professor of media studies at CU Boulder, and also the author of a new book titled Governable Spaces, Democratic Design for Online Life that explores some topics that really have particularly intense relevance at the moment. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you so much for having me. So it's always illuminating to me and sometimes surprising to learn about the circumstances that lead authors to write what they write. And in your case, this book about democracy in the online world uh, has its roots, uh, and that's a pun intended, in your mom's garden club. Tell us about that and why you decided to dive deep into this subject. Yeah, I, uh, I, you know, I, I've been working in organizing and and participating in digital spaces for many, many years, um, going back to when I was a teenager, and um, and a few years back, I was running a a large email list, and like happens in in many online spaces you know, a, a kind of conflict arose, you know, somebody who was behaving in a way that others found problematic. And I was in charge of the space. I was the admin of the of the list. And I was really struggling to find a way to resolve the conflict in a way that felt accountable to the to the community, that felt kind of democratic. And meanwhile, I was having phone calls with my mother who um uh who is a member of a garden club in her neighborhood. 
uh, a garden club like many, many garden clubs all around the country and the world. Um, and, and I was really struck by something. She had bylaws for this garden club. There were processes in place for how to address problems, for how power should flow in the organization. It helped her understand she had just been elected president, um, uh, who she was accountable to and how. And it made me realize, wow, I've never been in an online space with that kind of democratic structure. And there's nothing particularly special about this. I mean, her uh, bylaws, you know, in this garden club are pretty much the same as the bylaws of many, many civic organizations all over the place. But it struck me that, wow, that kind of structuring for democratic life didn't make it to the internet. Um, what are the consequences of that? Particularly when you look at the the tradition of a political thought going back to Alexis de Tocqueville in the 1830s, um, that suggests that our everyday practice of democracy is vital for our ability to practice democracy at larger scales. Well, and speaking of democracy, you you talk about having no fixed definition for democracy, that it's more of a horizon or something aspirational, a kind of a shifting target, depending on your point of view or where, you, where you're standing at the moment. But what are these governable spaces that you refer to in the title? Well, the, the governable spaces I'm, I'm talking about here are online spaces in particular. It's a it's an aspirational title. What would it look like if our online lives were were truly governable by the people they serve? And and the book is a story of how that is so so often not the case. Um, and you know, thinking about democracy in these spaces, however, requires us to reframe what we mean by democracy. I mean, for most of us, when we think of democracy, we think of elections, we think of the government, we think of you know, city, state, uh, 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 local, um, national, uh, maybe some international, um, but largely structured around nation states and borders and this sort of thing. Um, and, and, and particularly today, you know, at a moment where there's a lot of worry about democracy, both in the United States and around the world, it's largely framed in terms of the defense of those institutions that we know. Um, but actually, if you go, you know, if you, you look at um, some of the great thinkers on democracy from, again, Alexis to Tocqueville to also um, people like W.B. Du Bois, who talked about abolition democracy or, or um, thinkers around decolonial movements around the world, um, they see democracy differently. You know, even de Tocqueville insisted that and recognized that democracy always needs to evolve. It always needs to, to develop. It, it always has to move. It can't be fixed in institutions forever. It always needs to be um, uh, uh, moving into its next phase. And, and one of the kind of contentions of this book is that um, you know, the best defense for democracy, democracy is actually offense, is actually advancing this tradition, showing that democracy can change, not just that it can um, hold to its kind of constitutional meaning. And, um, and I think online spaces are a particularly important context where we need to be practicing and experimenting with the future of democracy if we're going to protect it in the present. Talk a little bit about the, the networks you describe, maybe you have some specific examples. So what is the, their relationship to the larger arena of governance or namely governments? 
Well, th there are a few different cases I look at. Um, one category is kind of historical examples. You know, I go back to some of the earliest networks um, in our online lives, and um, and these are things like bulletin board systems. Uh, there were a lot of them in Colorado, for instance, um, going back to the 80s and 90s. You can still find lists of all the different bulletin board systems. People often ran out of their houses and people log in and have conversations and, and you know, develop relationships they couldn't develop you know, in, in, in offline life often. And um, you know, in, in these spaces, some of these norms developed that are now you know, practically universal uh, uh, on the internet. And, and it's a pattern that I call implicit feudalism, where you know, essentially one person or the people that that person designates have essentially infinite power to administer um, and control these spaces. And they're not really accountable to the people in them, except that those people can leave. So exit is really the only form of accountability. We can't, you know, vote off our our admins, or we can't form juries um, to address problems. Um, and so there's a, you know, a range of examples of of those kinds of things. You can probably think of a few in your context um, in the spaces you inhabit. Another category of examples I look to are ones where this rule of implicit feudalism is actually breaking. Um, and I look at two very different cases um, in depth. One is is actually people trying to think about alternatives to policing, um, uh, groups that often go by the term um, transformative justice. So this often is associated with the Black Lives Matter movement, people trying to imagine um, forms of accountability you know, that aren't reducible to, you know, to state processes, to, to state violence. Um, and they're really struggling with how to bring those processes online, recognizing that so much of you know, their lives and work happen in those contexts. Another um, space that I look at, very different, um, is around blockchain projects and cryptocurrencies. And amid all the kind of um, scams and, and, and nonsense that's gone in that context, those networks have actually um, have a very different design than for that than, than virtually all other online networks in that they're kind of have to be co-governed by default. Even something like Bitcoin is in some sense a kind of cooperative of the people mining it, um, uh, mining this virtual currency. And so it forces people to figure out questions of governance in ways that we never really have before in online life. Um, and so I look at these kind of nascent spaces where suddenly like governance has become a challenge that people take seriously in a way that we really haven't done um, uh, uh, in the past. We've tended to defer that governance to the person with the server in their basement or the company that's in control. Well, as you mentioned earlier, a, a lot of the political conversation these days uh, centers on threats to democracy. Uh, what's the most compelling evidence of this that you see ar around the world, not just in the United States? And, and have online spaces uh, even contributed to that threat? Yeah, I think there are lots of ways, and you know, there's lots of evidence that that online life has contributed to you know the decline of democracy in fundamental ways. And a you know, usually the story has to do with the spread of inf disinformation or the decline in trust in in um, in institutions. Um, and those are, I think, those are correct. I mean, I think those are 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 definitely fueling a um, an authoritarian surge around the world. You know, especially you 
when you inhabit an online world where information is flowing all over the place, uh, where it's be hard to tell truth from, you know, from from fake news or whatever you call it, um, it's it becomes easier for for a kind of authoritarian figure to come in and say, I alone can be trusted. But I in this book, I point to another dynamic um, that I think has not been noticed, which is that that when we don't practice democracy in our daily lives, we lose our our have our democratic habits. We we get out of practice. And um, we kind of forget what what um, we, we forget to expect democracy in the in the in the political world around us, and we just kind of go like, okay, let's let's opt for for um, you know what we're used to. And you know, there's a longstanding uh, you know idea that's been demonstrated, for instance, in organizational studies about how the structure of how we communicate often ends up getting reflected in the structure of our organizations. And I argue, looking at cases like the Islamic State or um, uh, or the rise of, you know, for instance, the um, some of the aspects of the of the movement around Donald Trump, really seem to reflect um, the dynamics of everyday online life. So I'm arguing that that how we practice organization in like a Facebook group or in a group chat uh, or you know in these kind of humble spaces that we interact with other people in um, actually affect our imagination and our expectations for politics at larger scales, as well as our skills for participating in those. So let's dig a little deeper on that. Uh, you know, among the online communities that many of us are familiar with, one that seems to figure prominently in discussion about rules and fairness is X, the, the platform formerly known as Twitter that not long ago was bought by billionaire Elon Musk. Uh, there's been a lot of upheaval there. How does that speak directly to your point about discourse and democracy? Absolutely. I mean, X is a case that has gone from a kind of um, at least rhetoric of um, claiming that this is an open platform and this is for everybody to one that feels much, much more like this is some guy's fiefdom and he is in control and his arbitrary rules will will go. And and I think this is a symptom of this kind of deepening of the political imagination away from an open democratic public sphere toward this kind of implicitly feudal structure uh, that I talk about. And actually, some years ago, um, I was part of a group that submitted a, a shareholder proposal to Twitter um, trying to preempt this exact risk, um, we we tried to um, uh, call on the company to uh, develop more democratic forms of ownership to become more user owned. We actually talked about the example of the Associated Press, which um, you know w- which the Colorado Sun is involved with, and you know the Associated Press is a cooperative of news organizations. We su- suggested maybe that would be an appropriate structure for Twitter, um, arguing that. In order to prevent capture uh, of this vital public resource, um, we we need to take seriously the need for democratic structuring, as 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 the um, feminist scholar uh, Joe Freeman puts it. And um, you know, and I think you know, unfortunately, that that danger has has really manifested, and um, it it calls us not just to you know different designs in these democratic online spaces, but it. It actually requires um, rethinking, you know, the structures of ownership. And it was striking, for instance, that around the time of the sale to Elon Musk, 
Jack Dorsey, the former CEO and founder of the company, said, you know, this this platform never really should have become a company. Um, it, 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 that's a mismatch. Um, this idea that a public square should be, you know, owned for profit, um, you know, it's just it's just kind of upside down. And and he went on to, you know, then develop um, and support some new social networks like Blue Sky and Noster that are built around protocols rather than platforms that one company owns. And I think that's a striking revelation. At the same time, too, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and Instagram, you know, at, after the 2016 election, created an oversight board, a separate organization to to exert governance power over his company. Um, in both cases, it's kind of weird to see these CEOs saying, we need to have in some ways less power in order to do our jobs better. We need to have some kind of accountability beyond our own companies in order for this to even work. And that's a that's a pretty perplexing um, shift for some of the most power-hungry people and companies in the world. Well, you know, you, you mentioned a, a little while ago that our experience with social media has caused what you call, you know, everyday democratic skills to atrophy. But have we also learned anything about interaction that takes us in a more positive direction as a result of our embrace of social media? Yeah. And and I think there's a lot that's really exciting that can be done here. Um, you know, in contexts where, you know, the exception proves the rule, like, for instance, Wikipedia, which is co-governed and and run by its users, um, by, by particularly kind of skilled and active volunteer users, uh, especially, um, or even open source software projects like um, like the Linux operating system. Um, there you see examples of how incredible um, collective activity can happen in online space. And um, and, and a, a lot of people have started to recognize this is an opportunity for, for self-governance. Um, for instance, in the context of um, Barcelona, uh, uh, a... Um, uh, an experimental city council encouraged the development of a platform called Decidem, which is full of different kinds of tools for um, for enabling citizens to have a voice in their city government using digital tools. Um, the door opens with these technologies to think beyond the ballot box every four years, to think about different ways of delegating power to each other, different ways of of developing budgets collectively, uh, different ways of just rethinking what a vote is and and how we we distribute our voice uh, uh, in our communities. And um, you see also a lot of this experimentation around around blockchains where people have to figure out how to govern these networks uh, uh, collectively among people who don't know each other, don't live in the same place, um, don't have a lot of the kind of advantages in some respects that that local governments might have. And so it, it's kind of opened the door to a whole new set of uh, designs for democratic practice that I think is, is, is so powerful. I mean, when you start playing with different ways of self-governing, you start again to feel democracy is alive again. You start to, to, to recognize that th- this is, you know, there's so much more we could do to make these systems and institutions accountable to us um, that it's no longer a question of, you know, do we just trust these 250-year-old institutions are not. It's instead a question of how do we craft the institutions that that now this technology actually enable us to build that were never before possible. We know, speaking of online communities, uh, we've seen more and more publications, uh, especially newspapers, 
I know that uh, the Denver Post did this recently, uh, just kind of throw in the towel on trying to govern, I guess, what you'd call the online community that lives in the space where readers were able to comment on stories that they just read. How does that fit into your thoughts about democracy, both large and small? Well, I think part part of what goes on in a, in the context of a, a comment thread, right, is it's is it's it's uh, you know we 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 draw a distinction in the book I, I do along with a colleague uh, Seth Frey uh, uh, between um, uh, uh, affective voice and effective voice. This is the most academic distinction ever. One <laughs> little vowel change, right? But it makes a difference. Affective means you know, the voice of like feeling ex- that we can express ourselves and that we can spread our emotional state to other people, right? And that's the power we tend to have in online spaces, the affective power. But do we have effective power? Effective power means the ability to cast a vote and that vote is binding, to participate in a jury where, you know, we actually have a responsibility. And I think one of the deep problems in something like a comment thread is that it it indexes high on you know on uh, affect. It encourages people to be as like um, emotionally contagious as possible, without really giving them the responsibility and the power to um, you know to to, to have uh, uh, you know any real authority. And so they don't have a lot of incentive to be responsible stewards of that space. Um, and what you find is you know when you create spaces where people are actually, you know, bought into the space and have, you know, have something to lose when the when the comment thread, you know, gets goes awry. Um, they behave really differently, and I th- and and that's where I think we we need to approach these questions. You know, we we need to reimagine how we design online spaces um, so that people really have a stake in in um, the the kind of commons that we're co-stewarding, um, rather than um, uh, being able to just you know, emote and pollute those commons um, uh, without having any real uh, uh, accountability for the consequences. Well, let's talk a, a little bit here about your writing as craft uh, before we let you go. Uh, you, you began as a journalist. Talk about the difference between journalism that you did and the the academic writing, which you've alluded to here, and which this book is an example. They, they both have their own kind of rigor, but how are they different? Yeah, it's a, it's a. I love that question. Um, you know, this is, you know, in many respects, really my my first move as a you know in terms of books uh, uh, toward toward an academic style. And as I was reading the proofs, I was just feeling that like, oh, I have lost my. <laughs> you know, I was not able to tell stories the way I used to. But I I hope I've offered something else in 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 its place. Um, you know, I think it's really important. You know, I I, I to to honor. The kind of rigor that journalists uh, practice, um, and I think it's something that that academics often don't don't respect enough. And and um, one thing that I always think of when I hear you know my academic colleagues you know talk kind of disparagingly of journalists is like I'd love to see you go through a peer review process at you know Harper's or the New Yorker or some of the publications I used to write for more, um, you know, because y- y- you will. Y- it is humbling to see a you know a twenty two year old intern take apart your reporting, um, you know piece by piece and have to reconstruct it all at the end. Um, so so uh, you know I, I deeply respect both crafts and I've tried to include both. Um, one other thing that I'll just add about my own writing practice is I, I 
I love to write. Um, it's, it's just what I, um, it, it's one of the things that gives me joy in life. And, um, and I also really care about how I write as a result. Um, and I, I generally do most, most of what my writing that I wrote this book in a, a program that's been collectively built, uh, through uh, open source uh, software development, going back to the 70s, it's called Emacs. It's usually used by software developers, but it works perfectly well for writing text. Um, and um, and to me, there's something very, very beautiful about being able to write a book about collective governance in a piece of software that has been collectively governed uh, over time um, for many, many years. Um, and and it, it kind of challenges the the kind of worship of the new um, that often comes in in cultures around tech and uh, the idea that you know you have to use the latest tools. It's it's a very old piece of software. It's very simple, um, but to me, it's it's a a beautiful place to write. Um, uh, not only you know just aesthetically and in its kind of clean you know cleanliness, but also um, in the fact that as I write, I feel that sense that you know I'm I'm building in relationship to community. Um, I'm building in relationship to uh, people who've contributed, whose names I'll never know, but who, you know, who've helped make this, you know, this tool available to me. That's a, a wonderful symmetry that you stumbled upon there. Well, we've been talking with Nathan Schneider, whose book, Governable Spaces, Democratic Design for Online Life, you can find wherever fine books are sold. And I want to add uh, that you can read an excerpt from his book this Sunday in our Sunlit feature, uh, as well as a Q&A in, in which you can learn even more about the author. Thanks for joining us, Nathan. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And as always, listeners, if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you use to tune in. Thanks and have a great weekend. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. A Denver lawmaker who was a no-show on the House floor for the first six weeks of the legislative session is staying mum on the reasons for her absence. State Representative Elizabeth Epps made her first in-person appearance on the House floor February 23rd, 45 days into Colorado's 120-day lawmaking session. During that period, Epps sought permission to attend House sessions virtually, which meant she was unable to participate in floor debates on other lawmakers' bills. Emails obtained by the Colorado Sun show Epps told fellow Democrats she's, quote, experiencing an extended health condition, but gave no specifics. Epps declined to answer a Sun reporter's questions about her absence from the floor. Opponents are lining up against a year-old plan to ask President Joe Biden to establish a national monument on the Dolores River in southwestern Colorado. The proposal would create a sweeping protection for the river as it flows through Dolores, Montezuma, San Miguel, Montrose, and Mesa counties before meeting the Colorado River in Utah. Many conservation groups support the idea, but in the past 10 days, more than 2,000 people have signed a petition opposing it, warning it could invite new land restrictions and bring crowds to the Dolores. Supporters call those concerns misguided and say a monument designation would not end ranching, close jeep trails, or stop hunting. Colorado wildlife officers are drafting a plan to manage mountain lions on the front range with the goal of keeping the lion population healthy and away from humans. As part of the effort, Colorado Parks and Wildlife is on a tour to educate the public and get feedback. The tour began February 22nd in Evergreen and will conclude with a virtual meeting March 6th and an in-person gathering March 7th in Colorado Springs. 
The informational meetings comes as wildlife advocates work to gather signatures for Proposition 91, a ballot issue that would ask voters to outlaw trophy hunting of lions, bobcats, and lynx in Colorado. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. Now, a quick message from our team. This is Michael Booth. And this is John Ingold. We cover health and climate here at the Colorado Sun. Every week, John and I work together to send out a newsletter to our premium members called The Temperature. In this newsletter, we share our latest reporting about health and climate and how they intersect. Issues like forever chemicals, healthcare's rising costs, and the lingering effects of the pandemic. The Temperature is one of our weekly newsletters available to members at the premium level. To sign up, head to coloradosun.com slash join. Not only will you be able to sign up for The Temperature and our other premium newsletters, but you'll be supporting The Colorado Sun as a member, and thanks for doing that.